Today's reading will be from Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, thanks, Brian. Well, nothing builds momentum like surveys, so it's good to come up here. I'm glad you guys are excited to hear the word of God. Um, I wanted to, before I get into this, uh, just point something out that happens uh, sometimes here at uh, church. You know, we want to people to feel comfortable to wear whatever they want to wear, you know, be themselves, but uh, unfortunately, sometimes it just so happens that that we have some copycats. So I want to put up this picture. So I wore this shirt. He knows that I own this shirt, and clearly Daniel wore the same shirt because he wants to copy me. Um, we're really happy about it. You can't really tell. We are actually wearing the same shirt. There's like this print. Okay, there you go. That's it. That's all I wanted to point out. Well, we're continuing. <laughs> it was funnier, apparently, to me. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> um, we're, we're continuing in uh, Ephesians, uh, specifically looking, as we've looked the last few weeks, on Paul talking about what does it mean uh, to allow the work of the gospel, what does it mean for uh, the uh, kind of the outflow of everything that he talks about at the beginning of Ephesians to play out in our everyday lives. And, and for the last few weeks, we have specifically been talking about marriage, um, starting in verse 21. Um, verse 21, it, it starts by saying that we are to submit to each other as to the Lord. And this is a really important verse. This is the verse that kind of shapes everything that we're talking about, that there is, there is a mutual uh, serving of one another. There is a mutual submission to one another both kind of out in every context, and then what does that specifically look like in the context of marriage? But there is this mutual desire. It's not one person uh, driving it. It's both people pushing towards what this looks like in Christ. Then it went on to say that the wives to submit to your husbands as to the Lord, which is basically an attitude and posture of respect and support for the leadership of the husband. said, Husbands, love your wives with a death-to-self-serving love, just as Christ loved the church. And, it, and we went into those in great detail. If you have not been here the last few weeks, I want to encourage you guys, because this is kind of part of a series, that all of this is kind of building 
on itself. Uh, throughout this week, go back. You can find any of the podcasts online. And I would listen specifically to these podcasts to get a feel for the, gener- the bigger picture of what we're talking about. Um, but today we're going to be wrapping up this section by looking at the last two verses. Verses 22, or verses 32 and 33. So let me read those, and then we'll get into this. So it says in verse 32 of chapter 5, it says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what we have here at the end, closing off this this big section that Brian just read, is a theological statement. So verse 32 is a theological statement. It's actually an incredibly deep, profound theological statement, but one that is not incredibly accessible without talking about it. It's one of the most, I think, profound things that Paul says in any of his writings is right there in verse 32. And then followed up with that is is the practical implications of this theological statement. And so for us to walk away, I think, understanding not just these two verses, but the general scope of what Paul is talking about, I want to spend a good chunk of time diving into what is Paul truly trying to say? What is the connection that Paul is making between the church and Christ and marriage? Because he's making an explicit connection between these two. So I want to first talk about this kind of theological statement. And the theological statement is this. That the mystery of marriage is a sacrament of Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is a sacrament of Christ and the church. Now I'm going to explain what I mean by that here in just a second. Because I'm using specific words that carry with them specific meanings. Um, But first I think we have to ask the broader question as we study these passages. Are we talking about marriage? Is Paul even talking about marriage in this passage? Or is he really just talking about Christ and the church? You know, it reminds me of another age-old question that I often get, being who I am, uh, and that is kind of what's more important in a taco? Is it the tortilla or is it the meat? Common question. What, what, what matters most? The answer to it is it's a stupid question. How dare you pit the tortilla against the meat, okay? They are both part and parcel of the same beautiful piece of food, okay? You can't talk about one and not care about the other. In the same way, this passage is not one or the other, okay? It's all part of the same theological taco, okay? We're not going to pit talking about marriage against talking about Christ and the church. Paul is not intentionally making the choice of, of one or the other. He's talking about both. This is an incredibly practical uh, conversation about marriage, married couples do what Paul is saying here, it will be life-giving in your marriage, okay? But if we miss the other part of what he's talking about, then we'll miss something that is practical beyond just marriage. That what he's talking about in marriage is, I would say, a sacramental experience, a sacramental insight into the nature of Christ and the church. And that is something that every single one of us needs to know, needs to see, and needs to understand the beauty of. So there's two words that I think need to be clarified in that theological statement. The first is mystery. What is mystery? Well, mystery is, is 
different from what we think. I think we think of like Nancy Drew. Um, does any, has anybody read Nancy Drew? I don't, I don't think I've actually read Nancy Drew. I just think of Nancy Drew when I think of mysteries. But that's not really how it, this term was used back then. Mystery was more referring to something that was kind of contrary to what you would typically expect. And oftentimes something that would involve something miraculous, something spiritual. So when you hear the word mystery, particularly in the context of the scriptures, it's not talking about some like investigation that we have to figure out. It's talking about something that is kind of ironically mysterious. So something that happens that is true, that is profound, that is in fact the way it was supposed to be, but happens kind of contrary to the way we would expect it. And specifically in this passage, when he's talking about, when he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, he's specifically referring to the mystery of the two becoming one flesh. Right before he quotes from Genesis, says a, a man will leave his father and his mother and shall cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is the mystery that Paul is talking about. It's something that as we'll see runs contrary to what you'd expect and is something only possible through spiritual intervention. There is something both unexpected and miraculous about the union of marriage. And Paul is making an explicit connection between that and the relationship that Christ has with the church. The second question is, what is sacrament? For those of us who've been in the church, this might be a word that you've heard before. Um, for example, when we come later to take the uh, communion together, that is an official sacrament of the church. Uh, if you've been baptized, that is an official sacrament of the church. It is a physical experience kind of that we're supposed to go into to clarify a spiritual reality. That's what a sacrament is. It's a physical act, a physical experience, a physical moment that speaks to, kind of exemplifies, and draws us into a spiritual reality. Now, uh, the Catholic Church actually talks about marriage as an official sacrament. We, in the Protestant Church, do not talk about it that way. However, I think it's important that we still understand the sacramental nature of marriage. That as Paul is talking about this, Paul is saying marriage is not just about marriage, but there is something about the experience of marriage that points to a deeper spiritual reality. There's something that we see when we see this redeemed marriage, this beautiful union happening that should point us to a deeper spiritual reality. And that, what I think is important about that is that's something that if we're in the middle of it and experiencing, we can see this as a moment to enter in and see this is about Christ and the church. What does it teach us about that? And if we're not in it, if we're not currently married or if we have no intention of being married, if you're single and, and as we've talked about so many times, that there is, in the eyes of God, he doesn't care, okay? When we see that, you can still look and observe marriage and experience it sacramentally. You can still understand the implications of marriage and the sacrament that draws from it. So since marriage is sacramental, understanding it is both important for married couples and singles. Because it shows us and gives us unique insight into the nature of Christ's love for the church. So the mystery of marriage is a sacrament of Christ and the church. 
So I want to look at this because that's a broad statement. And I want to narrow it in specifically because the sacrament is, is not just something that speaks broadly to a, real, a spiritual reality, but oftentimes to a specific spiritual reality. For example, when we come forward and we take the bread and we take the wine, we, we are experiencing his body that was given for us on our behalf. We are experiencing the death of Christ. We drink of the wine. We are uh, drinking of the new covenant. It's a reference to the new covenant. When we are uh, baptized, we are buried with Christ and resurrected with him in new life. That this is a physical symbol, a physical attitude, uh, or a physical action that brings us into a spiritual moment. In the same way, we need to understand the specifics of what we mean. We say that the sacrament, that the mystery of marriage is a sacrament, or at least should be understood sacramentally to Christ's relationship with the church. So we want to look at two ways that Paul brings up. The first... <coughs> regarding marriage and the church, is that it, it is a symbol, it is exemplifying the reversal of the curse. It's symbolizing the reversal of the curse. Now what is the curse that I'm talking about? Well, in generally, the curse refers to what happens in Genesis 3. So after Adam and Eve do what they did, God comes down and he, and he has a conversation with them. And, he, and, and this is where we understand the nature of the brokenness of humanity, the brokenness of sin. And the curse is broad. They, they, it talks about kind of now the conflict that will be involved between kind of mankind and earth, the, the struggle that will be incorporated in work, the pain that will now happen through childbirth. All of these things that were meant to be beautiful and easy and accessible now become challenging and difficult. And contrary to one another because of the curse. One of the things that it talks about happens in Genesis 3, 16b. Can we bring that up? So this is him talking to Eve. So this is God talking to Eve. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. As a result of the curse... There is embedded in women a desire to subvert the authority that they see around them. That is what this is saying. That your desire will be contrary to your husband. That there will be a desire to subvert authority. In the same way, for husbands, there will be a desire and an impulse to rule over your wife. To take advantage of the authority that you have, the power that you might have, and abuse it for your own gain. And this is the nature of a cursed relationship that men and women have with one another that shows up oftentimes in a marriage. The wives are trying to subvert the husbands, the husbands are trying to lord over the wives. And this is the nature of the curse. And if we notice, and I think it's so important to understand the curse when we understand what Paul is saying, because what Paul is doing when he is saying these things to wives and saying these things to husbands, is he's saying for you to really experience the life that you need in marriage, that God has planned for in marriage, we have to do the opposite of the curse. The curse must be reversed for us to really experience life in the midst 
of marriage. And as we've seen, for wives, for example, instead of subverting, their attitude must be transformed to submitting. So instead of subverting your husbands, submit to your husbands. And we talked a lot about this, and I, because of time, I don't want to go into in detail what we mean by submit, mainly because two weeks ago we had a whole sermon on it. But there's a lot of things that this doesn't mean, and it's important that we clarify what submitting doesn't mean. So make sure you go back and listen to that. But what he's ultimately saying is for this to work, for marriage to actually act the way God intended marriage to act, there needs to be a reversal in the heart of the wives from a desire to subvert, from being contrary to your husband to a desire to submit, to being supportive, to being respectful, to being for the leadership of your husband. And yes, that is a radical statement. I get that. For husbands, it's a similar reversal that Paul is calling them to. That instead of lording over the authority and power that you might have over your wife, instead of doing that, instead of digging into that natural thing, you're to take all of that power, all of that authority, the headship that Paul describes in here, and you are to use it to kind of serve, submit to, and build up your wife. That there is a death to the power and authority that you have for the sake of loving, truly loving your wife. What's interesting is even though I I think both statements are radical, the second statement I would say is significantly more radical. The call that Paul has to husbands in this passage is crazy. It's true, but it's crazy. And we should feel the weight of that. So part of the way the mystery of marriage is a sacrament of Christ in the church is that we see that in it, for it to work, we have to recognize that there is a reversal of the curse. There is a reversal of the way in which men and women were going to interact as a result of sin. That wives, instead of subverting, move to submitting. That husbands, instead of lording over their authority, they love through death. And because this is sacramental, we can see a direct relationship between how we understand the nature of Christ and the church. So in the same way, we as people have a natural desire to subvert the rule and authority of God in our lives. That is the heart of sin. That we don't want to recognize that God is king. That we don't want to recognize that he is in charge of our lives. We don't want to recognize that what he says is the way to life. And so we do everything we can to subvert it. So in this union, in this connection between Christ and the church, we see the same dynamic. We see the same call. That in the church, we have moved from being a people that are subverting the rule and reign of God to a people who are submitting to the rule and reign of God. We are recognizing the authority and doing everything we can to respect it, be obedient towards it, and be for what he is doing. So that's where we see the church moves from subverting to submitting. And in the same way, Christ, instead of lording over his authority over us, instead of 
kind of just saying, I'm God and I can do what I want, which he could have done. Instead of doing that, he submits himself to death. The one person who didn't need to do any of that. Philippians 2 talks about this, uh, where he says he basically gave up the, the rule and authority, the, the, the realities of his godness. He doesn't stop being God, he's still fully God, but he doesn't allow himself to act like God in the midst of this for the sake of actually entering to the death that was necessary to show us love. And so the way that Christ loves the church is not by ruling over us with an iron fist, not by abusing his authority for his own selfish gain, but by giving up himself completely, allowing all aspects of who he is to die so that we might have life, so that he might love the church. I had a professor in seminary, a guy named uh, John Hanna, and he was just one of those professors where literally Every semester, I just looked at what class he was teaching, and as long as I could fit it into my schedule, I just took it. I just loved his classes. He was a, a historical theologian who focused um, on um, kind of the early American uh, Protestant preachers and, and theologians. Um, and one of the things that I remember him talking significantly about, and this is the first time I ever heard this word in this context, um, but he would always begin every, every class by, we would sing some hymn, and he was a terrible singer, and all the hymns were weird. But he would sing a hymn, and we would all like pretend to sing along with him and know the um, way it went. And then he would always pray afterwards. And one of the things that he would always pray is he would pray thanking God for his condescension. But God, I thank you for your condescension, that you in love condescended to us. And at first I didn't really understand it, and, and apparently... And he, eventually I got up the nerve to ask him what he meant by that. Um, and this was a Puritan term uh, used by a lot of Puritan theologians to describe exactly what I just told you about. That what God did through Christ, suffering unto death, was an act of condescension. So I think for us, we hear the word condescension and we think of it as a bad thing. Because to be fair, if I like am condescending to you, Implied in that is that I think I'm better than you, which is why generally being condescending towards people is not a good thing. However, God is not like us. God is not the same as us. So for him to come to the earth, to become a man, and not just do that, but actually go into death to suffer alongside of us, was him giving up, taking away his power, taking away who he was, and subverting that, condescending himself down to be with us. It's a dissension to be with. That is what condescending means. And so what we see in what Christ has done is condescension. I love that term. It's one of my favorite ways of thinking about God's love. And in a real way, and we have to be very careful how we talk about this, the husband's love should be a condescending love towards his wife. Now, that doesn't mean you should be condescending towards your wife, men, okay? But there is a real way you are recognizing that even though, uh, because of a lot of different reasons, there is an embedded authority, headship, all of these things, that we are to use that in a way that basically subverts all of that, that, that we, we take that down, we allow it to die for the sake of building others up, for the sake of building up our wives, 
The reversal of the curse requires submission and condescension, which as Paul shows in this passage is the mystery of a redeemed marriage. The only way a redeemed marriage works is if we get this, if we understand this. This is at the core of a reason why a lot of marriages don't work. There is not a desire for submission and not a desire to love unto death. There's not that mutuality within it. And anybody who has been in a relationship like that understands the pitfalls of it. It is destructive. It oftentimes ends in, in, in a breaking apart of that union. So what we see in this, the first thing is that the mystery of Christ, or the mystery of marriage that's shown in wives submitting and husbands loving unto death is a sacramental insight into the way that Christ loves the church. And so when we do that, one of the implications of this is for husbands and wives in this room, as we enter into this, as we do this, we're not just doing this for our spouse. Wives are not just submitting to their husbands for their husbands. Husbands are not just loving their wives unto death for their, for their wives. We are doing it unto the Lord, and we are doing it to show the world what Christ's love looks like. And that matters. The second aspect of the sacramental nature of marriage in the church is seen more specifically in what Paul is immediately referring to when he talks about mystery. So the second aspect of marriage in the church, the second uh, connection between the two is the union of heaven and earth. And yes, in parentheses, I put sex as sacrament. So full disclosure, uh, the specific mystery Paul is referring to is not just about the marriage union, but he is making an explicit and intentional connection to sex, to the union of sex. And since Paul goes there, we're going to go there. Um, the language of two people, two becoming one flesh is a common way in the Bible for them to talk about this. So Paul was not being cryptic when he was saying this. He was not trying to be slight. He was intentionally, specifically referring to this reality, that this idea of two becoming one flesh is a reference not just to marriage union, but to sex. And I think we understand why that's a reference to it. It's funny, we, uh, so Lauren and I have decided with our kids that because sex is just such a common thing that they're going to be kind of exposed to conversations. This is a highly sexualized world. We have made the decision to talk to them about sex very early on. Um, and uh, we're going to have many conversations about sex with our kids. And so we decided to start the conversation with our kids uh, basically the day before or a, a few days before they started kindergarten, which I know sounds early, but it's out there. Kids are talking about it. And so I would rather our kids look to us as the experts as opposed to their kindergarten friend, because their kindergarten friend doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> and so we decided to do this. We, we, we pulled Kyler aside, and, and my wife began by just saying, hey, there are some big questions. There are some big and important things in life that we think it's important for you to know, at least begin to understand before you start kindergarten. Hayes had already fallen asleep, so Kyler stayed up late, and so he already thought this was a little weird. 
Um, so we pulled him in, pulled him aside, said, hey, we want to sit down and talk to you about something. And so we go into it, we, we kind of talk about it uh, at a very basic level of what we're doing. And it was so funny, we, we kind of asked him kind of what his thoughts were on it. And, and his initial response was, this is so boring. So that was Kyler's initial response to um, us talking to him about sex was, this is so boring. Um, but so it was going really well. Uh, and um, we were sex talk versions. So, you know, we, we hadn't gotten into that. We'll get better by our fourth kid. Um, we were doing that. And so we, we talked a little bit more about it. We tried to reiterate, make sure he understood. And, and then we asked him, my, my wife asked him, so, you know, this is one of the big questions, big things in life that we want you to know. Are, are there any other things that you want to know? Any other big questions that you have? Any other big subjects, big topics that you'd love to understand from us? And Kyler thought about it, and his eyes like lit up, and Lauren and I were really excited because we're like, okay, we can have a deep conversation with our son. And he looked at it, he's like, yes, math, of course. I want to understand math. We're like, okay. That was not what we expected. So, um, and we said, good luck, because we don't understand math. Um, <laughs> You know, we talked about this, and, and, and one of the reasons why we did this with our kids and why we continue to do this with our kids is because it, without conversation, without, I think, a lack of good conversation surrounding it, there's a lot of bad conversations that inform it. That if we don't drive this, if we don't define the terms, if we don't actually talk to them about it, then there's a lot of other people that we'd love to tell them about sex. There's a lot of other people that would love to teach them about kind of the nature of that union. And quite frankly, I don't trust other people in that regard. I think the church oftentimes is the same way, is that for whatever reason, we are afraid to talk about sex. And because of that, there's a lot of bad understandings about what the Bible thinks about sex, what the Bible means when it talks about sex. Oftentimes, we only hear kind of in the negative uh, about what sexual immorality is or, or what sex isn't, and the Bible talks plenty about that too, that we don't take the moment to actually have a conversation about sex. So consider this a part of our ongoing sex conversation that we have at this church, okay? It'll be fine. So this is kind of how it goes, and I'm actually going to talk about it with regards to Christ and the church, what it's ultimately symbolizing, and then we'll talk about it in the context of marriage. Because this is, the, the, the mystery of the union of husband and wife is a sacrament to the union of heaven and earth. So we see here with Christ and the church that Christ, parentheses, what, what I mean by heaven, generously gives. The church, earth, hospitably receives and new life, resurrection, is born from the union. But very specifically, Christ gives of himself, the church receives him, and new life is born. That the resurrection happens as a result of this. And this is not the only time the Bible talks about this. In, in poetry, uh, in the Psalms, it talks about this in Psalm 85. It's one of my favorite passages. 
And you can see that there is a romantic reality to the way he's talking about this. Psalm 85, pull this up, verse 10 through 11. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Steadfast love being, being Christ, being God's love towards us, and faithfulness, both his faithfulness towards us and our faithfulness in response to him, they meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. There's this beautiful union that happens between God's people and him that brings about new life. It is God who initiates it. It's God who gives. His people receive that in faith and from it is resurrection. It is beautiful. It is incredible. This is the power of redemption and purification that Paul is even referring to earlier in this passage. If we look, starting in verse 25 of chapter 5, it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that through this union he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Going on, starting in verse 29, it says, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That there is this one flesh reality of Christ and the church, one that G- God, through Jesus, drives. That he gives of himself generously. He's not stingy. He, he does not hold back. He gives of himself generously. The church receives that hospitably and with faith, and from that, new life is born. It is incredible, the reality of the gift of God through this. Now, let's look about what that means for marriage and, more specifically, sex. So to kind of pull this together, one way that the Bible understands at least what sex should look like that husbands generously give, wives hospitably receive, and new life is created through the union. Now, I'm sure that this is how we typically talk about sex. Just imagine it now. Honey, would you like a generous gift? (laughs) I doubt that'll go over well. Um, And by the way, I do want to point this out, that at least in that... From this analogy, and sacramentally speaking, husbands are heaven. Take that for what you mean, um, for whatever that means. But guys, in all seriousness, this is why I think sex matters so much in the Bible. This is why sex is such a beautiful and wonderful thing. This is why sex is spoken of so highly in Scripture. It's not just because it creates new life, not because it serves this practical function, but because it is a glimpse into the divine. A moment where heaven and earth meet, and from it is born new life. I think the reason the Bible talks so much about sexual immorality is not because the Bible hates sex, or because it thinks it's dirty or filthy, but because it is by nature sacred. If you actually look at the way the the Greek word, when it says this mystery is profound, that word profound is just the word mega. The mystery is mega. Sex is weighty. It is profound. It is too beautiful, 
too profound to be profaned. And that's the way the Bible thinks of it. The reason why God, through the Bible, talks so much about sexual immorality in the negative way is not because it hates sex, it's because it loves it. Because this is a beautiful and sacred thing that God holds dear. Not just because of what it does within a marital union, but because of what it means to the nature of Christ and the church. Because this is a picture of what it should look like. That when we have biblical sex, when we have this beautiful redeemed sex, it is a symbol and a picture of what God's love for us is and the new life that we have in him. And that's why sex matters so much to God. That's why this is so important. Sex is too weighty, too beautiful, and too profound to be profaned in Scripture. And these are the theological implications. So when, when Paul says, and this mystery is profound, and I speak of Christ and the church, this is what he's meaning. That as we see this marriage happening, as we see husbands loving their wives, as we see wives submitting in respect to their husbands, as we see the nature of the two becoming one flesh, what we are glimpsing into is the incredible mystery of God's reversal of the curse and his union with the church. It is profound, it is weighty, and it is beautiful. And so after that, after we kind of get this theological picture of why this matters, he follows it up by what I would say is both an incredibly profound and incredibly practical summary. In verse 33, he says this, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So ultimately, if we ask, what are the implications of all of this stuff? We see it right here. In a very practical way, it means husbands, love your wife as yourself. Wives, respect your husbands. This is what we should get from all of this. I know that this was a long way to get to what was originally just stated, but it means that we should act in this. And we act in this because we understand that this is what Christ has done for us. I love the way it starts in verse 21. It says, submitting to one another as to the Lord. That all of this is done first by submitting to Christ and recognizing that what we are experiencing in, these, in this, this type of relationship is an outgrowth of what Christ has done for us. So what does this mean then for the different kind of people that are in this room right now? First off, what does this look like for married couples who are in, for better or worse, a good place? And I hope that, and I think that there are people here who, yes, marriage is hard, marriage can always be better, but are in a decent place. First off, I would say what this should remind us to is to keep it up. Um, one of the things that I'll talk about in premarital counseling with people, and one of the things that Lauren and I will constantly remind ourselves is that marriage is a garden, and you can tend it for eight years, and if you stop, within a year, weeds are going to grow things are going to start to die, okay? There is a constant tending that has to happen in a garden for it to flourish. And if you're in a good spot, praise God, keep it up. Husbands, 
make a point to recognize how you are to die that day for your wife and for your family. How are you to give up of yourself? How are you to use the authority, the power that you have in your relationship to build up, to love, and serve your wife? Wives, take every day and think, how can I respect and support the leadership of my husband? How can I be for my husband? Ask that question daily because the garden needs to be tended daily. Now, for married couples who are in a bad place, who are struggling, I think as we hear this and as we look not just at what we talked about today, but as from the last two weeks, the implications of this is that we need to start. That there's nothing that's going to happen that's good by not doing what Paul talks about here. It's only going to get worse. Don't wait for your spouse to start. Just start. Start to, uh, husband, start loving your wife. Even when she doesn't deserve it. Even when you're feeling hurt. Start loving your wife. Because let's face it, Christ loved you even when you were being a pill. Okay? Even when you weren't all that fun to love. Christ loved you. And because of that, just start loving your wife. Start dying to yourself and serving your wife. It's remarkable how much this will heal. Wives, if you're in a bad place, just start respecting your husbands, even if they're idiots, okay? Because there's a good chance that they are, okay? There's a good chance that they're not acting all that respectable. Respect them. Just start. Turn it around. Allow the mystery of the union of Christ and the church, allow this beautiful thing that God has put in place for his good and for his glory, for our good and for his glory, allow that to start and shape your life. And if you need help, talk to somebody about this. I, that's not in my notes, but I just thought of that. Like, if you're there, don't wait till it's too late. I think that that's probably the most, the, the hardest thing that Frank and I, as we talk through um, this stuff with people, is that they wait too long for stuff to kind of spring up. And by the time we talk to them, it's really like it's going to take a miracle for things to turn back around. So if you're there, talk to somebody about it. There's no shame in it. Everybody's been there, okay? Those single again because of divorce. There are people here that are single again because of divorce who may remain single the rest of their life, might be remarried. I can understand, first off, that this, these last few weeks have probably been challenging. I get that. That this has been a hard topic to talk about because there's a lot of um, maybe anger, maybe hurt, maybe pain in the midst of it all. What I want to encourage you guys in the midst of that is to begin to start reinvisioning marriage through this lens because there's a chance you might get remarried. And not knowing the specifics of the story, but most likely there was some breakdown of this stuff within the marriage. Go back and actually look through and, 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 and look into your own heart. Look into your own kind of ways in which all of that stuff came about and resubmit your life in that regards. Submit to the Lord in obedience in the midst of that. If you're single because of divorce, still allow this to shape your view of what marriage could be, even if that's not what you've experienced in marriage before. And allow God to redeem and heal that part of your life. And lastly, those who are single, who are maybe single just 
currently and not going to stay single forever or are going to be single and will remain single. Start to develop a redeemed view of marriage regardless of your plans. Start to understand the nature of this because the nature of this dynamic is not just true in a marriage, but it is true in the way we understand our nature, our relationship with God. In the way that God loves the church, we are to respect God. We are to be obedient to God. We are to serve Him and be for His vision. We understand this. We understand the nature of how our relationship with Christ flourishes. It's the same dynamic. We understand that God has been faithful to do what he said he would do. He has given up his self for you. He has died. He has condescended on your behalf. And the proper response for everybody in the church is to submit to him. Is to understand that out of respect, we serve Christ. I think, I, I, I love this passage, and I'm so thankful that we got to talk about it. My hope, my deepest hope is that we understand the beauty inherent in the mystery of marriage. That there's something so profound, so wonderful, and that's not me sugarcoating it, because marriage is really hard. Marriage is hard because, let's face it, I'm an idiot. I do stupid things. And that makes it really hard to be in a marriage with me, and I've feel like you guys are probably the same way, okay? Marriage is challenging, but there is something so beautiful in the midst of it. If we can live into that, imagine, just imagine what it would look like in the world. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much, God, for unveiling yourself to us in this way, Lord, that you um, have shown us the incredible mystery of your union with us through marriage, Lord. And I pray that wherever we are, if we are married, if we are not married, God, that we would be able to look at this with joy. God, that we would be able to look at this with hope, knowing that we we don't have to live our lives suffering the curse. Lord, that we don't have to live our lives fearing the disparity that comes between you and us because you have taken the initiative you have generously given of yourself Lord so that we might have new life Lord we pray this in your name Amen Well we're going to respond now by uh, doing a few things we're going to sing together I want to encourage you guys to sing together I want to encourage you guys to sing this song this is a chance for you to sing to one another sing to yourself the truth and reality of what we're what we believe We're going to come forward and we're going to take communion together. Communion is something that is really for the church.